Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello and welcome to episode 798. We got Kwame Christian back because Kwame's got boatloads of insights yet again. This time we're chatting about how to have difficult conversations about race and many other issues. You'll learn one, why we struggle when discussing race. Two, how discussing race can enrich workplaces. And three, a powerful three-step framework for any difficult conversation. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced, please pace a visit at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP798. And now here's Kwame's story. Kwame Christian is a best-selling author, business lawyer, and CEO of the American Negotiation Institute, or A&I, if you will. Following the viral success of his TEDx date and talk, Kwame released his bestseller, Finding Confidence in Conflict, How to Negotiate Anything and Live Your Best Life in 2018. He is a regular contributor for Forbes and the host of the number one negotiation podcast in the world, Negotiate Anything, which currently has over 5 million downloads worldwide. Under Kwame's leadership, A&I has coached and trained several Fortune 500 companies on applying the fundamentals of negotiation to corporate success. Kwame was a recipient of the John Glenn College of Public Affairs Young Alumni Achievement Award in 2020 and the Moritz College of Law Outstanding Recent Alumnus Award of 2021. He's the only person in the history of the Ohio State University to win alumni awards in consecutive years for the law school and the Masters of Public Affairs program. That said, Kwame's proudest achievement in his life is family. He's married to Dr. Whitney Christian, and they have two lovely sons, Kai and Dominic. Big thanks to Kwame for sharing his wisdom with us, and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. No. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Kwame. Kwame, welcome back to How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Hey, Pete. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm excited to be chatting with you here in this forum, although we go way back uh, <laughs> with, with podcast movement and a mastermind group and some hijinks. So normally I ask guests for a, a fun fact about them, but I want to ask you for a fun fact about, about us. Yes, everybody, I'm going to share some dirty laundry on Pete <laughs> Mikaitis. So uh, I remember back at Podcast Movement, which is the greatest podcasting conference, oh, maybe, perhaps the greatest conference in the world, <laughs> we roomed together. And for me, Pete is like my, my big brother in podcasting. And so I realized that there are a lot of things that we do similarly. And I realized something really interesting when we were together. When it comes to making decisions, Pete will put more research into that decision than I would ever contemplate <laughs> doing. <laughs> so whenever I need to make a decision or I need to buy something, 
first I'll go and see if Pete has bought that thing or made that decision. And then I just do whatever he did. <laughs> That's my decision making process because he will research things to a point that I would never consider researching. And I said, you know what? If it's good enough for Pete Lakaitis, it's good enough for Kwame Christian. Well, you know, I am honored by that. And it's funny, as as we're talking, I believe we are using the same chair and same microphone yes. right now. <laughs> yep, exactly. <laughs> so I'm flattered and, and honored and, and I do over-research things. And I think it's, you might even call it a hobby at this point. <laughs> it's just fun for me as opposed to stressful. So... All right. Well, you've done a boatload of research. How's that for a segue? I like it. You've done it. a boatload of research and in your book, How to Have Difficult Conversations About Race, Practical Tools for Necessary Change in the Workplace and Beyond. And, and boy, you've been having some really powerful conversations that have been getting a lot of traction here on LinkedIn and elsewhere. So could you tell us, as you've lived this experience recently, engaging more folks about this stuff, any interesting themes or discoveries or surprises been popping up for you? Yeah, Pete, I think that's one of the most interesting things, because as, as you know, I do the negotiation and conflict resolution uh, type of work with the American Negotiation Institute. And for me, this is just an offshoot of that, because we need to understand each other in order to connect on a deeper level. And when I think about difficult conversations about race and other sensitive topics, these are some of the most difficult conversations and negotiations out there. So I want to create that resource. And so one of the things that's so fascinating to me about this is that people all around the country and all around the world are struggling with this conversation for different reasons that have very core similarities. So for example, in different countries, you'll have different race-related issues. But at the core, we have two things that come to mind which trigger high levels of emotionality. So first, we have issues of identity, who I am as a person, and what somebody like me is, is supposed to do in this situation or what I perceive is supposed to do in this situation. And then the other one is morality, what it means to be a good or bad person, what is the right or wrong thing to do. And whenever we have conversations that touch on those two issues, that's what triggers deeper levels of emotionality. So no matter where you are in the world, these conversations come up and they are typified by high levels of emotionality. And so for me as a former mediator and a, a lawyer and somebody who has a background in civil rights, it was really fascinating to take those negotiation and conflict resolution skills that are really familiar to me and bring it to this new space so we can have conversations on the sensitive topic that are constructive, not destructive. Mm-hmm. Well, and those are two powerful principles right there, identity and morality. When you start to venture into that territory, yeah, it's getting real personal. Like the identity is like who I am and morality. Am I good or behaving well and properly or am I, am I doing evil? Exactly. Whew. I mean, <laughs> that's, it doesn't get much more potentially heated than, than that when you've got those two dynamics in play. Absolutely. And, and Pete, when you think about it, we all want to feel included. We all want to feel as though we belong. And whenever conversations like this go awry, you feel excluded for a core reason. Like, I can't change my race. And so it, it feel, the rejection feels a lot more personal. And then, you know, I, I, I've, I looked at the document that you sent and I, I understand the demographics of your audience. And I was really glad to see that none of the people in your audience are 
people who get up in the morning and say, I'm excited to be evil today. You know, you know we didn't ask that question in the survey, but maybe for the next one, just to be sure. <laughs> Listen, no, that was something that was coming through the data. And so I saw that. And so that's the thing. When when we have these conversations, we that issue of morality is triggered because you want to immediately defend yourself. I am a good person. And then that level of defensiveness comes up and uh, it just leads to even more emotionality. So that that helps us to understand why these conversations are just so tough. Mm-hmm. Well, so your book is called How to Have Difficult Conversations About Race. And so we're going to dig into some of the how. But first, I want to talk a little bit about the why, because some folks might just put this category into the no-no zone, you know, right next to, hey, I don't talk, especially at work, about money or sex or religion or politics. Let's just go ahead and put race in there too, because it feels too risky. So can you comment a little bit on why to have those conversations and maybe when and where, like sort of like the, the contextual landscape that makes this a great idea in time versus a, oh, maybe in a slightly different context would be a better time. Yeah, great question. And so here's the thing. You'd love this. I'll give you a, a bit of a behind the scenes negotiation with my publisher. All right. In chapter one, I talk about why we should have these conversations. And chapter one was the only chapter in the book that I did not want to write. That was a specific request from my publisher. So for me as a practitioner, I wanted to essentially write the book like like this. Hi, I'm Kwame. Here are some tools and tactics and strategies and jump straight straight <laughs> into it. I want to go to where I feel comfortable. But my publishers are saying, listen, we're missing an important element. We need to discuss why it's so important to have these conversations. And for me, and I think rooted in my own perception, it seemed obvious to me why we should have these conversations. But even though it seemed obvious, it was hard for me to articulate. So it took me a really long time to even begin writing that chapter, Pete, because I didn't know what the answer was. I didn't know what the words were. I had a feeling, but I didn't know how to articulate it. And then I I figured it out. It comes down to just one word, and it is the word care. Mm -hmm. We have these conversations because we care. We care about our colleagues. We care about society. We care about progress. We care about inclusion. We care about respect. That's why we have these difficult conversations about race, because we care at a deep level. And now when it comes to when we have these conversations, I'll I'll answer it in an unsatisfying way Mm. initially, like a typical lawyer. It depends. All right. (laughs) We, We need to have these conversations when it's appropriate, when it's a salient issue. And so when I think about my legal background, one of the things that is critical for young lawyers to learn is how to issue spot. What are the issues that are relevant in our problem-solving endeavor. And so we need to figure out what's relevant and what is irrelevant. So let's use something that's a little bit more understood or appreciated or respected within the workplace. So within a workplace, if we're running a business, we understand that money is an issue. We have budgets, we have payroll, those type of things. And so as people in the business world are making decisions, money is going to be an issue. It's not always going to be an issue, but it's often going to be an issue. And sometimes it's not the whole issue, but it's a partial issue. And sometimes when it comes to race, race is often not the whole issue, but race is a part of the issue. And just like money, sometimes race is going to be an issue. It might not always be the whole issue. The conversation might not be completely about race, but it might be partially about race. And then, Pete, there are going to be some times where to one party in the conversation, race is an issue. And to another party in the conversation, race is not an issue. And then 
this becomes a difficult conversation about race because we have to talk about race in order to determine whether or not it is a relevant issue in this conversation. And so I think one of the things that happens in the business world is that race becomes a factor and people don't see it coming and it becomes a surprise. And if we're not looking for it, we might not find it. And because of our lived experiences, we might not look for it, but somebody who's a person of color where that is a, a very salient part of their identity, it might be easier for them to see it because they are more primed to see it. But regardless, I think it's important to have those conversations in order to make sure that everybody feels respected and in order to make sure that we're addressing the, the issues within the workplace to make sure that people feel respected and so they are included and, again, just to, to solve problems and move the, the company forward. People feeling respected and included, that's huge. And and I'm thinking about research associated with psychological safety and creativity and innovation. And so it's not all about money, but while we're talking about the why, can you share with us some of the, the research or numbers or connection there is associated with organizations that are able to handle these sorts of conversations and diversity, equity, inclusion stuff well and and results, be they financially or retention or whatever numbers we got. Absolutely. So McKinsey did a study, I believe in 2019, where they showed that companies that have greater levels of diversity are able to produce more revenue as it relates to research and development. Okay. And there are a number of studies that talk about how companies that foster strong levels of inclusion and belonging have higher retention rates for people of color and other diverse classes of citizens too. And I, I think one element of that's often missing in those studies is the fact that this only works if there's a high level of cultural intelligence associated with mm -hmm. the company. And so think about this. If you have a really diverse organization and then the people in the organization aren't trained on how to connect with each other, they don't understand each other, then you're going to have retention issues and you're going to have poor performance. You might as well have a monolithic organization at that point because it would actually be more effective if we don't invest in like the, the skills that are required to avail ourselves to the true benefits of diversity. And I think that's where a lot of organizations fail because they say, all right, hey, we have diversity issues and I see the studies. Diversity is good. Cool. Let me put some brown people in my company. <laughs> and, and they think that's going to solve the problem. But if we still have challenges with the culture and inclusion and belonging, it's going to be a struggle. Mm -hmm. I had a podcast guest who mentioned that it seems like some organizations, his words, it felt like they were going for the clip art in terms of they want the stock photos to look awesome. But he sort of shocked them when he said, Okay, you guys have the clip art in terms of, of of everybody being represented, but there's actually not a lick of diversity in this room because every time we came up to an issue where we had a difference of opinion, we said, oh, let's table it. Let's take it offline. Let's cover that later. And we were never actually able to engage and hear these great diverse perspectives that you've all got to hear them hashed out and then be able to, to mine the goodness that can come from it. Exactly, exactly. And that's when it becomes performative too. So we have to really embrace these conversations and not just embrace the conversations, but in, embrace the diverse perspectives. And I think, again, this is clearly very well 
related to race and gender, ethnicity, those type of things. But I think in general, in the business world, too, we have to do a better job of managing these difficult conversations, because if we don't, then we're not able to truly connect and learn from each other and and make better decisions, too. And for me, as a lawyer negotiation expert, I like I said, I look at everything through the lens of negotiation. And I define a negotiation as anytime you're having a conversation and somebody in the conversation wants something. And so that's why I think it's really helpful to look at these conversations through that lens, because if we do, now we can really elevate the dialogue. All right. Well, so I think we've built out the why. Let's do it. Let's talk about the how. Can you give us a feel for your overall approach or framework? Absolutely. And this is, do you, do you hear the excitement? <laughs> now we're getting to where I love to be. And so when I think about difficult conversations in general, this is the overarching uh, type of approach. With the American Negotiation Institute, we focus on diffuse, connect, persuade. Diffuse, connect, persuade. So first, in any conversation, there's probably going to be an emotional element. So we need to diffuse that emotional challenge so we can have a more productive conversation. Then we need to invest some time in connecting with the other person, building trust, building rapport, empathizing, those type of things. And then last step is persuading. And if you handle the first two steps, diffusing the emotionality and connecting with the other person, sometimes persuasion happens organically by the increased level of mutual understanding, but sometimes it doesn't. But if even if it doesn't, We make persuasion last because we want to avoid unnecessary barriers to success in these conversations. So I think it's important to sequence things effectively. And when it comes to the actual process of how to diffuse these conversations, uh, we have the compassionate curiosity framework. And so it is a three-step framework that's designed to make your difficult conversations a little bit easier. And it's all about emotional intelligence, managing those emotions and creating that connection. So step number one is acknowledge and validate emotions. Step number two is get curious with compassion. And step number three is joint problem solving. And it's a flexible framework that allows you to know what to say and when to say it for maximum impact because sometimes emotions might not be an issue. Okay, then we're going to go to number two, getting curious with compassion. I'm going to ask open-ended questions with a compassionate tone. And then after, after I gather that information, I transition to joint problem solving. But then during joint problem solving, the other person might have an emotional response. Okay, I know exactly what to do. I'm going to get, I'm going to acknowledge and validate the emotions. So it's a flexible approach to help you know what to do and what to say at what time. Mm-hmm. And so you said validate emotions. I love that stuff. I'm thinking about Michael Sorensen and we had on the podcast, I Hear You, a surprisingly simple skill behind extraordinary relationships is his book. And I love it. And my wife is glad I read it. <laughs> Can you tell us what validating emotions sounds like in practice? Yes. Oh, and I'm glad you said sounds like. So mm-hmm. I like to keep it simple, Pete. I'm a simple man. Okay, I don't <laughs> want to overcomplicate things here because the reality is that during these difficult conversations, we're probably going to be emotional too. And so if I give you a 13-step program <laughs> to apply during this conversation, you're not going to be able to use it because you're under emotional distress. So again, what I want to do is I'll say, it sounds like, it seems like, or if it's a really obvious emotional response, I can tell that. So it sounds like this was a, a really hurtful situation for you, or it seems like this had a significant impact on you, or I can tell that you really care about this. 
right? And so I'm going to label that emotion and Uh it's going to help them to calm down. They'll decompress, they'll share. And it's important to understand that at this point, when somebody's emoting in some kind of way, this is not the time for us to try to force our beliefs on them. This is not the time to let them know that you're right and they're wrong, because we have to understand that There's a difference between facts and feelings, but in the moment, it might feel the same to the person. And so if we start contending with the facts at this time, their emotionality won't allow them to fully appreciate what you're trying to say. So in these conversations, sometimes we have to make a strategic choice between being right and being persuasive. Difference between being right and being persuasive. So they might be factually incorrect. And I might want to correct them because I have the the appropriate fact for that situation, but that might not be the most persuasive choice to make in that Mm -hmm. conversation. And so sticking to that framework helps us to be a little bit more disciplined during the conversation and, and steer the conversation in a more productive direction. Okay. So when we label an emotion, I think this was a hang up for me, but I don't think it actually matters. We don't actually have to name the emotion perfectly in order for people to appreciate the attempt at validation, I've learned. So if you, I'm just going to be a little wacky. It's like, well, it sounds like you were really enraged. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> like, like, no, I mean, I, I was just kind of frustrated. <laughs> you know, even if like you were sort of way off, like enraged is much more intense than frustrated. People still seem to appreciate the attempt to understand where they're coming from emotionally. Absolutely. And that's the thing, Pete, because people don't like being mislabeled. And so they will correct you, mm-hmm. thus labeling themselves. So I'll give a couple of examples. I'll give a, a pretty benign example, and then I'll give a, a more uh, <laughs> a more dramatic example. So I remember one time I was in a negotiation uh, when I was practicing law, and the person was really frustrated. It was two CEOs that whose relationship devolved into sending aggressive emails <laughs> to each other. It was really bad. And so I heard the person's complaint, and I said, well, hey, correct me if I'm wrong, but It seems like you were pretty offended by what was in the email. And he stopped and he looked up and he's like, I wasn't offended, but I was more taken aback. Oh, okay. I wasn't going to shoot my shot at taken aback. Never would have thought that one. But he started to calm down once he labeled it himself and he started to explain. And then there was another time. I like to use frustrated Mm -hmm. because it's a safe guess. And I remember in a mediation one time, there was a woman who was very stoic. It was a really tough situation for her. Everybody knew it wasn't her fault, but she was still stuck with the legal liability. So it was just a really tough situation. But she wasn't giving me the information I needed to try to solve her problems. And so she, uh, so I said, you know what? This is probably an emotional response. She's stonewalling me. Let me try to break down those, uh, those barriers by acknowledging and validating the emotion. So I said, hey, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like this situation was pretty frustrating for you. And then she got quiet and then she glared at me <laughs> and she said, oh, oh no, Kwame, I, I am not frustrated. I'm angry and I'm angry for this reason, for that reason and this reason. And I said, listen, I, I apologize. It makes sense that you're angry. Can you tell me a bit more about what's making you angry? And then she went on, she decompressed, she gave me a lot more information, and I was able to use that information productively for the rest of the conversation. And I think one of the things that's really challenging about this is that when you're in the face of high-level emotions, like very volatile or or f- strong emotions, it's scary 
and we think we're doing something wrong and we want to step back. But really what we have to do is we have to have the confidence in our skills and confidence in the framework to sit in that emotionality and trust that we have the skills to navigate through it. Okay, cool. So we talked about diffuse and compassionate curiosity. Can we hear about connect? Yeah. And so this is all about creating connection with the other side. We want to try to create a trusting connection. And one of the things that we need to understand is what are those things that destroy connection? And so one of the things I talk about in the book is uh, the shame-based strategies. And so when you think about uh, Brene Brown and vulnerability, I mean, she has a, a lock on the vulnerability market. I have no intention of trying to encroach on her territory, Pete. But uh, one of the things that she talks about is, is shame and the impact of shame. It causes people to pull away. They recoil from the interaction. They say, listen, I tried to be vulnerable and I was attacked. I don't feel safe. I'm not going to engage. And remember, this is a this is a free country, right? You don't have to speak if you don't want to. But I can't have a difficult conversation or a conversation of any sort if the other person is unwilling to engage. And so one of the things that we do that breaks connection is use shame-based strategy that vilify people for their beliefs or what they think. And so my response always has to be using this framework, being curious to get a better understanding of where they're coming from. And so one of the things I like to do is try to not vilify other people if we disagree, but use it as an opportunity. I always say conflict is an opportunity. So what's the opportunity? We can learn from each other. So if somebody says something that I disagree with or they believe something that I disagree with, say, oh, that's really interesting. Now I'm curious. I want to learn more. And so I want to give them the space to share. And then after they've shared, they're more likely to reciprocate. And then that gives me an opportunity to share my knowledge with them or my perspective with them. And so I think connection really comes from that empathy being willing to to take the time to understand how the other person is seeing the situation, understanding how they feel about the situation and understanding how they think about the situation and not judging them for those beliefs. Okay. And tell me, are there any nonverbal indicators that we might be judging that we should watch out for or... <laughs> Check ourselves out on the video camera. Uh, yes, eye rolls are not helpful, Pete. To keep keep your eyes, you know, <laughs> locked in. No, I think really it is very important to to realize those nonverbals, and I think it's just a, a good exercise to pay attention to how your body responds under certain circumstances. And so we all have our our little tells that we have from time to time, and. When the conversation gets tough for me, one of the things that I like to do to kind of get a little bit more control of my responses so those tells don't come through is take some notes. It's one of the easiest things you can do. Your vision is now fixed. Your hands are, mar are now focused. It controls a little bit more of your body. So whenever I start to feel a, a response that might indicate some negative emotionality, toward the person, I use that as an opportunity to take a few notes and it doesn't come off as negatively. So that's a really great question. Paying attention to those nonverbals, your own, that's really important. All right. Well, now let's talk about persuade. Yes. And so this is where everybody wants to jump to. Uh, they want to start the conversation at, uh, at Persuade. And that is often problematic because, again, we are inviting resistance because the way that I see it, Pete, I feel like we have to earn the right to be able to disagree. And here's what I mean. A lot of times, 
early in the conversation. We are so quick to tell somebody that they're wrong, but we have it's inappropriate because we don't even have a full understanding of where they're coming from. Now, they might be wrong. <laughs> they they might be very wrong, but I want to make sure that I have a holistic understanding of where they're coming from before I, I try to change their perspective. And people are going to be resistant to your attempts to change their perspective if they don't believe that you have a full understanding of their perspective. Because mm-hmm. they're going to say to themselves, how can you say I'm wrong? You don't even know what I mm-hmm. believe. You haven't heard me, right? And so it's important to sequence it this way and have persuasion at the last step. And I, I talk about the parable of the the blind men and the elephant in the book. And uh, it goes like this. They say, uh, there's an elephant in a room. Ha <laughs> ha, elephant in the room, right? Mm-hmm. And they have um, five blind men and they say, hey, I want you to feel this elephant and I want you to describe the elephant. And so one man touches the tusk and says, an elephant is like a spear. Another man touches the leg and says, the elephant must be like a, a big, strong column. Another elephant, another person touches the elephant's ear and says the elephant is like a thin fan. And then they start to argue who's right, who's wrong. Well, they're all right and all wrong at the same time. And a lot of times when we have disagreements, it's not necessarily that somebody is completely right or completely wrong. It's that we're looking at very different parts of the elephant. And so I think one of the best ways and and most subtle ways to persuade is to help people to see the rest of the elephant. I want to take the time to give them the space to describe what it is that they're feeling. What is it that they feel? What is it that they think? What do they believe? And where does that come from? And be genuinely curious about that, not judgmental. And then I want to say, okay, now I can understand where you're coming from. Let me share what I'm seeing. Let me share the piece of the elephant that I'm seeing that you might not see. And then I share. And so we're really helping each other learn and grow through the interaction. And a lot of times that might be enough to persuade. But regardless, I think that's an important first step. All right. Thank you. Well, let's jump into some particulars when it comes to to race. As I've listened to your stuff, uh, a few things I found super useful. And one of them is you discuss that there are actually two totally different <laughs> operational definitions or camps or schools of thought when it comes to the very definition of the word racism or racist. And and it makes all the difference in in terms of understanding where people are coming from. Can you unpack that for us? Yeah. And again, definitions are so important. I have a whole section on the book called semantic arguments, (laughs) how people will get stuck on different <laughs> on different terms and what they mean. And so it's not so much what the dictionary says a term means, it's more so what the person understands it to mean in that particular interaction. And one thing that I've realized is that the term racism is something that's thrown around a lot. And a lot of times it's accurate. And when I think about these conversations, I want to approach these conversations in the most persuasive way possible. And I won't always focus on my goal. What is the goal that I want to achieve? And how best should I go about trying to achieve that? And so one of the things that we're going to run into a lot of times in these difficult conversations about race is that people are going to be very defensive if they feel as though they're being accused of something so terrible as racism. Because sometimes people say racism is acting with malicious intent. Mm-hmm. And sometimes other people say racism is anything that leads to a negative impact that 
hurts people of color more so than than whites, something like that, right? And really, what definition matters the most? The definition that the person is using in their mind in the conversation. And so for me, I am I very rarely come to the point in a conversation where I accuse <laughs> the person in front of me or or the the situation as being racist because I know what's going to come next, Pete. Yeah. I know exactly what's going to come next. No, I'm not racist. No, they're not racist. No, this is not racist. Now we're having a semantic argument about what racist, what what it means to be racist. I I find that to be a lot of times unproductive in this conversation. Yeah. We might not agree that like what it means to be racist. But if I stay very objective on the facts, we might be able to agree on the fact that the behavior, though well-intentioned, had a negative impact to a specific racial group. Yeah. People could say, yes, I do agree with that. And now we can move forward with solving the problem. And so I think just having a, uh, a, a very specific and targeted approach with our language can help us to avoid a lot of these <laughs> these unproductive conversations where we get stuck where somebody is being accused or feeling as though they're being accused and then the other person trying to <laughs> accuse. Well, that, that's so powerful because I think folks can just wildly misunderstand each other right there in terms of if folks say the SAT is racist. If you have a different version of what that word means, like, like that sounds insane. Like what what are you a standardized test is not a human being with emotions. Like what are you even saying? So so like that just will not connect. And yep. if you're operating from the other sort of of definition in which malicious intent is not at all necessary, to call someone racist is in a way not that severe. Tell me if this feels accurate to you. Not that severe of a charge. Exactly. In terms of it's like are you a sinner? Are you a person who makes mistakes? Yes and yes. It's like, do you have somewhere in your brain a series of associations that lead you to have a touch of a bias on certain issues about certain groups? Imagine that we all do, even if they're innocuous, like Lithuanians love their ice cubes. Now, that's, I'm Lithuanian. My buddy Connor always quotes that Malcolm in the middle. Although I actually do have a portable ice cube machine that I got here for the office. What? Because my refrigerators, <laughs> it's not that important. <laughs> but so would that be fair to say that if we're using the broader definition of racist, then everybody is one. Is that fair? 100%. Okay, and so I'll refer to one of the the most popular books out there in in the field, and it's How to Be Anti Racist by Ibrahim Kendi. And one of the things that he talks about is his definition of of racist is pretty ubiquitous. And he says like there was a part a, a time where I was racist, and there are times where I act in a racist way. He he owns it, and he says he defines racist as like I said before anything that could have a potential negative racist impact. And I know uh, listeners who are, are big fans of Kendi, they will say that is not precisely what he said, and I am not citing him precisely. So I want to be very, okay. very clear on that. But I think the core of what he, he says is that the term racist for him is merely descriptive. I know I have that part right. He mm -hmm. says it's merely descriptive. It's not a value judgment. It is just a simple observation. And now let's accept that as true, that 
doesn't mean that it will not have a predictable emotional response in the yeah. minds of the other person. And that's one of the things that we have to recognize. Emotions don't play by our rules. And so whether or not we believe that somebody is entitled to feel the way that they feel does not change the way that they feel the way that they feel. And the way that they feel will have an impact on the conversations that we try to have with them. So we have to wrestle with the reality of their emotional response. And for me, as a negotiation expert, as a strategist, I want to be very intentional about the way I navigate through these conversations to avoid that rejection, that reflexive rejection that comes with these types of accusations. Because there are very few people in the world who would say, you know what? You called me racist. You're right. I'm racist. Because that will come <laughs> with significant social consequences in today's society. Right. Certainly. Although, if we have clearly precisely defined the terms, I can imagine a group of heads nodding in a, in a seminar like, okay, yeah, fair enough. I guess in a way uh, we are all somewhat, in some regards, racist. Right. Okay. So in a way, it defangs it. But before you've tilled all that mental soil such that everyone is, is ready to understand what we mean by those specific definitions, then yeah, you're going to get a strong response to that. I also loved what you had to say is that sometimes but we should avoid unnecessary barriers and sometimes semantics are do just that. So if, if you use the term white allergies, white fragility, white privilege, systemic racism, there is a subset of the population that will hear those and just like shut down or they won't take kindly to those terms because they have some association and baggage associated with it. Yet, when you explain what you really mean by those things, they say, oh yeah, okay, I understand. Yeah, that's a thing that happens. Sure. Absolutely. And and Pete, in the book, I, I break that down too. I have I have actual sample conversations. So we actually talk about the tools or the tactics or the strategies. And then we have sample conversations. And we have sample conversations on each of those terms <laughs> that you okay. just addressed, right? And uh, let me tell you, let me tell you a story. So I was in uh, Brazil in earlier this year and I started texting some of my Brazilian friends and I started to get some weird texts because a lot of them started to kept on sending me the text that said KKK. Mm. And I said, why are you sending me that? <laughs> because to me, growing up in America, KKK means the Ku Klux Klan, which is one of the most horrendous terrorist organizations in American history, race related, very racist, right? And But people kept on sending it to me. So I started Googling <laughs> What is happening here? And so for them, KKK is the equivalent of LOL. So it's the laughing sound like. Oh, I get it. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so when they're laughing, they say KKK. Now, I understand that. I definitely understand that. But that does not change the fact that it will essentially always have a little bit of an abrasive response from me uh -huh. because that is not how I've known the word for the last three over three decades it has been associated with something very bad i can't just instantly say oh now this is a, a playful laughing yeah. yeah i can't do that same thing with these words there's always going to be some baggage associated with these words so that's why it's important for me to recognize whether or not there is resistance associated with specific terms and if there's specific terms where there's resistance then i'm going to use the definition mm -hmm. rather than the term yeah the way I was trying to remember this 
tip from you. I make mnemonics for myself of other people's material. <laughs> so it's like, oh, so if semantics are creating an unnecessary barrier, S-U-B, I can substitute it with a definition. Huh? That's how I remember wow. your tip. Second free to edition. use that, but your, your stuff is edition. probably way better than mine already. So it's like, thanks, Pete. That was lame. I've got way better stuff. Uh, uh, no, that's going into second edition. I like that. Oh, I'm flattered. <laughs> Okay. Well, I love what you had to say about focus on the goal and how to best achieve that. And maybe you do need to substitute some semantics that are creating unnecessary barriers. And I'm thinking about two stories in which I I think, so some groups were trying to have some conversations about race, and I'm pretty sure they failed to meet their desired goals based on how they were being received. And it's, I'm going to throw some scenarios at you. And you don't know what went down, <laughs> but I'm going to ask for you to to do your best to speculate as, oh, when I see that kind of thing, it's usually because they failed to do this or they, they should have done that, most likely. So here we go. Scenario one. A buddy of mine said he was at church and they were having a series of dialogues about some some race issues to learn how to, to do better on these these matters pick up some skills, hear about perspectives. And then there was a, a white girl in her 20s who was chatting with my buddy. And she said, boy, after hearing all this stuff, I, I guess I just realized how how bad and racist I am and how I just totally don't understand what people from the other side are saying. And I really have no right to discuss it. So I guess I have nothing to offer and I should just keep my mouth shut. And she proceeded to not come to any of the other meetings. And so my buddy is also a speaker author dude. And he said, wow, never in any of my programming has the goal been to have someone feel totally disempowered <laughs> and to, to feel the need to withdraw. So, so that's a thing that can happen sometimes during the course of engaging in these conversations. Any pro tips on having that not happen for people. Yeah, so let's approach it from two different perspectives. So let's first approach it from the uh, the person's perspective who said, "You know what? I'm out. <laughs> I this mm-hmm. is this is too this is too much, right?" And so I, fear can masquerade in different forms. And oftentimes it will take the form that is most persuasive to you. And so okay. I was talking to somebody earlier today and she was saying, "Listen, I I feel overwhelmed. I feel ill-equipped to have these conversations. So I'm just not going to have these conversations. And I said, see, you're a, you're an intelligent person. And what you're doing is you're over-intellectualizing the situation and saying, I need to study more. I need to study more. And you keep on moving the goalposts just in order to make sure that you never put yourself in a position where you feel obligated to have the conversation or you feel worthy of having the conversation. And so what this person is probably doing is saying, wow, I'm seeing the risks. This is scary. I am going to back out. And backing out does nothing but protect her from her own emotional discomfort. Okay. And so we have to look into it and see how fear will operate in these situations. And then for the person who might see this happening, we use compassionate curiosity. And so we might say, hey, uh, I noticed you stopped coming to the meetings. What what happened? Well, I I didn't feel comfortable coming to the meetings. Okay, so it sounds like you were you were a little bit uncomfortable and maybe a little bit afraid of making a mistake. Yeah, that's how I'm feeling. And then they explain. 
getting, and then we move to getting curious with compassion. Well, what is making you so afraid? Well, I'm afraid of making a mistake. Okay, tell me more. Well, I also feel a little bit overwhelmed because I should have been doing more, but I haven't been doing more. Okay, now let's get joint problem solving. So it seems like, based on what you said, you want to do more. Well, what are the things you can do that can make you feel as though you're doing more? Well, I could start coming back to these meetings, right? That's a simple... <laughs> <laughs> example of how the conversation could go. But I, re I wanted to kind of flow through how the compassionate curiosity framework could work in that situation. Okay, cool. Thank you. And I guess I'm thinking, so that's from her perspective, I guess also the people coordinating the thing could share some of the comforting words that, that you've been sharing. Like, hey, this is tricky for people. It's challenging. There are some risks. It's going to feel uncomfortable. And that's just how it's going to be. We have different associations. There's some complexity. They go, oh, okay. Oh, this is hard for everybody. And that's okay. Exactly. Cool. Okay, well, here's another scenario. This was at a Fortune 500 company, and they had a huge meeting in which they, they announced, uh, henceforth, the goal is uh, by, I don't know, 2027 or some couple years away date, X percent of the positions above C level five, I, I don't know, in their system, like directorish and above they had sort of a numbering system for executive seniority power, if you know what I'm saying. So X percent of these positions will be filled by black people. And so then on the chat, there's a whole lot of muttering going on. And their mind's like, oh, I see. Well, what percent is going to be Asians and women and disabilities and elderly folks and Latinx? Oh, okay. Mm. So they're kind of miffed about this and, and maybe they didn't feel included. There's just like, they felt like this is just being thrown upon them or they don't understand what's at it, or they think maybe there's not, I don't know, structural fairness. I don't know precisely what their beef is, but that is a response that can happen when there is a fiat and saying, this is how it is with regard to race, everybody. And then the murmuring begins. Any pro tips on dealing with that better? Yeah. So it, it's funny, Pete, when you said that, I, I had the immediate response. I said, oh, OK, well, we're opening up Pandora's box here because there are many other races that are under underrepresented uh -huh. there, too. Right. And I think this is a is a really great example of the ubiquitous nature of these conversations, because we can talk about the book title in terms of how to have difficult conversations about race. But really, we could substitute any sensitive topic. And so we think about age discrimination, racial discrimination gender discrimination, all of that type of stuff, the same underlying frameworks can apply to those situations. And so I think it really comes down to having a conversation about, first of all, what's the problem that we want to solve, and then figuring out what other problems we want to solve at the same time. Because the, the choice did cause some murmuring. We cannot ignore that murmuring and pretend it doesn't exist. And so it's important for us to like lean into that conversation and have it at a high level and be open and transparent about it just to make sure that everybody feels uh, seen and appreciated. Okay. Understood. Well, Kwame, tell me anything else you really want to make sure to mention before we hear about a few more of your favorite things. At the end of the day, really what we have to do is we have to have these conversations. If there's anything that I want your listeners to take from this is that we have to keep this simple, have the conversations and use the framework. And that's better than the alternative. All right. Thank you. Now, could you share a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? The best things in life are on the other side of difficult conversations. 
That's the motto of the American Negotiation Institute. And that's really the ethos that I try to bring into each of the books, the podcasts, and the trainings that we do. All right. And could you share a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? One of the things that I, a lot of communication experts like to talk about is the importance of empathy. And I'm no different. <laughs> I talk mm -hmm. about it too. But I think one thing that people have to appreciate is the fact that empathy is very, very difficult for some specific reasons. When you look at the study of the studies related to in-group versus out-group bias, it is much easier for us to empathize with people who are like us. So think about a non-race related example. Imagine if you're watching a, a football game and uh, somebody gets hurt from your team. Let's say they hurt they, their knee. You will reflexively reach down and like almost grab your knee. You'll wince. You feel their pain. That happens automatically. But if somebody else from the other team gets hurt, you don't have that type of sympathetic response. You might actually cheer. <laughs> That's the tribal nature of humanity. But on a deep subconscious psychological level, it's easier for us to empathize with people who see us as one of them, as part of their tribe, as part of the group. And so I think a couple of things that uh, we need to realize is number one, empathy takes effort, especially when the other person is different from you. And number two, we can trigger a little bit more automatic empathy in our direction by being mindful of how we can mobilize biases in our favor. So an example of that is affinity bias, right? I like people who are like me. So at the beginning of every conversation, my goal is to approach this rapport building stage from the perspective of getting the other person to see me as one of them. We are on the same team. We might look different. We might have different perspectives. But when it all comes down to it, we're on the same team. And just taking the time to really pull that together helps us to trigger more of that automatic empathy and makes the conversations a lot easier. All right. And a favorite book? Well, my favorite book used to be Finding Confidence in Conflict. And now my favorite book is How to Have Difficult Conversations <laughs> About Race. Is that oh. too self-serving, Pete? <laughs> <laughs> but I will say, I will say, I, I did find particular joy in reading how to not lose your stuff, I'll edit it, how to not lose your stuff with your kids. So talking about emotional regulation for parents. And so it's hard for me to pick a favorite book because I try to read a book a week. And so usually it's the one that is closer, like most recent to me that registers the most, like recency bias, haha, -ha, bias is everywhere. So I'll give a shout out to that book as a recommendation for all the parents out there. Mm -hmm. And a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job? LinkedIn. It has to be LinkedIn. I am addicted to LinkedIn. I, I post every day and it's been a really rewarding connecting with people on LinkedIn. So if you use LinkedIn, make sure to connect with me, follow me. I always try to be really generous with the content on that platform. And a favorite habit? Going to the gym in the morning, I'd say. I'm, I'm realizing more, more and more that this is, I guess, what uh, Charles Duhigg would call a, a keystone habit because a lot of good habits come from that because it's tied to my meditation routine. It's tied to my uh, gratitude journal in the morning. So if working out in the morning is happening, then I know a lot of other good things are happening too. Okay. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? So check out the podcast, Negotiate Anything, and also our other podcast, Negotiate Real Change, which is about diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace, but using negotiation and conflict resolution as a tool uh, to promote it. But for general leadership, conflict resolution, negotiation, sales, that type of interpersonal communication, check out Negotiate Anything. And then also 
reach out to me on uh, our website, the American Negotiation Institute.com. And if you're interested in trainings, workshops, coaching, all of that type of stuff, you can reach out to us there. Okay. And you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? Yes, everybody. The challenge is this. Use the framework. Use compassionate curiosity. If you have the opportunity to interact with a human being within the next 24 hours, I guarantee you, you will have an opportunity to put these skills into action. So whenever you have that opportunity, remember, acknowledge and validate emotions, get curious with compassion, and use joint problem solving, and just get into the habit of using that, and it'll be your best friend in those dark times when you're having those tough conversations. All right. Kwame, it's been a treat. I wish you much good things on the other side of difficult conversations. I appreciate it, my friend. Thanks for having me on. I really loved Kwame's philosophy when it comes to semantics, terms, definitions, facts, being right, (laughs) and just noting that our emotional systems often don't play by logical rules. And they are likely to not play by your rules or the rules you think they should operate by when you're dealing with someone else's feelings and emotions. And being a little bit thoughtful and strategic about considering the emotional elements and particular responses can be dead on when you're having a conversation that might be venturing into some sensitive or tricky areas. So great stuff from Kwame. Again, the show notes, the transcript, and the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP798. Hope to catch you next time. And peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.